0: The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Journey podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved, and does not represent Wise Words Imaging or any other company. Wise Words Imaging is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series. Is available from the respective owner. Enjoy the show. is Keith Hackett. And before anyone asks, no, not Keith Hackett, my grandfather, God bless him. He shares the same name, but this is Keith Hackett from Sheffield originally, I believe. Keith, Mm. welcome to the journey. Uh, Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. All right. Um, Now, I followed you Wow. I was born in 1983. You were a referee for the Football League when I was growing up and then obviously the Premier League came along in 92, which is technically the year you were meant to retire from football. But yes, going back to the early, early days of refereeing and your life as a child growing up, what made you become
1: where you wanted to become? Yes, well, I, I mean, as a, as a youngster growing up in Sheffield, city where I was born and still live. Um, We have a a remarkable history because this is where football, soccer in in the States, was started. Um, We we have the oldest football team in the world. It's still in existence. It's an amateur team, uh, Sheffield FC, not United or Wednesday. (laughs) And we also have the oldest football ground in the world, which is at Sandygate Road, Hallam, which is a suburb of Sheffield. Uh, where it's still played upon by Hallam FC, the second oldest club in the world. So we're going back in in terms of history to around about 1857. And when you consider that the Football Association was formed in 1888, around that time anyway, you'll see the long sort of history of the game. Um, I, I went to... A local county school. I I used to walk to school and on the way with friends, we used to play football every doorway because of terraced housing would be a goal. And we probably (laughs) probably finished up by the time we got to school, which was probably about a mile and a half away, uh, something like a score of 26 to 24 or something similar. (laughs) Uh, So... then from sort of my leaving school, I went into industry. I, I worked in a steelworks. I became a, an apprentice, went through all the shopping, all, all the sort of steelworks environment, becoming a design draftsman. Uh, and at that time, um, I was playing for a local team in Sheffield, amateur football, on a Saturday. And, uh, and it was suggested that one member of the team, and I was the captain of the team, Could go to the county FA and uh, learn the laws of the game. And I was a volunteer that actually everybody stepped back and I was on my own. So I was the volunteer. I went, I took the six evenings um, and we had the 17 laws to learn. And then uh, we were given an oral and a, a written question and answer session. And I asked. With no intentions and, and became a qualified referee. So I had no intention of refereeing. I was still a member of the team. And then on one Saturday, we were without a game. And I got a call the, the days before from the County FA guy, and a guy called Ernest Kangley, who said, Mr. Hackett, yes, you're refereeing in uh, Sheffield, uh, sorry, you're refereeing Hillsborough Boys Club versus Sheffield United Juniors and put the phone down. So well, I had no response to be able to say, I'm not going to referee. Anyhow, I turned up at, it's still there, the ground, at, at this school ground, the team take, and Rockville is a city of seven hills. And therefore, finding a pitch or a playing field that was flat is rather rare. So this school field was a little bit sort of up and down in terms of its undulation. And uh, I borrowed a shirt, a referee shirt. I'd got some football shorts. Uh, I must have looked quite a bit of a mosaic as I walked out onto the pitch and I refereed this game, um, <laughs> blowing a whistle that I borrowed, believe it or not, and and a, and a stopwatch which seemed like a ton weight. Refereed the game, and after the game, this guy came in, now known as Len Swallow, and his son was on the football league, and he came in and said, "This congratulations, we've really enjoyed your your game. How long have you been refereeing?" And you never like to admit do you? But I no. said, "Well, this was my first match, and I, I apologise if I've done anything wrong." But the guy goes, "No, no, it, I'm really well." As a consequence of that, I was drawn into refereeing, and I spent twelve years in junior football, grassroots football, as we call it here, refereeing midweek in the summer, in the sort of early autumn periods, uh, and. Uh, by side at local gymnasium or even the YMCA had a, yeah. a gym, so I found myself refereeing car dealers. So every every Wednesday, I would put on my kit, go to this gymnasium, and referee these dealers. But in the changing room, we all changed together. There's a huge amount of banter with these guys because what I found out was they all had plots in and around Sheffield and in the town centre. Selling mo- second-hand motor vehicles. <laughs> so there, 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 there were some spivs amongst them. <laughs> I'm pretty sharp. Sure. But when they put on the kit, their friendliness changed. And then they wanted to win. Yeah. And, um, and after the game, there was the, the usual banter, the, the, the sort of uh, social drink you've got to remember, I'm still a young lad, so pubs are new to me, so it was orange juice. And they, the, the looks that I used to get when they were all having pints of beer and, I, and, I, and they're saying, what do you want to drink? Orange juice. And, it, <laughs> um, and, and so, if you like, in those 12 years of refereeing at grassroots level, Saturdays, Sundays, sometimes probably about 100 games a season, um, you learn your craft. Because yeah. um, I, I tell a story of refereeing Perth uh, Brown Tools, which, is, which was then a huge steelworks, a massive steelworks, pouring smoke out into the city. So it was a well known uh, steelworks. And I was invited to referee what uh, their departmentals, uh, which is, you know, the, the machine shop playing the administration office and all those sort of things. And, uh, and in one of those games, I sent a guy called Richard Cabanoff. I gave him a red card, which was most unusual. Um, and he later became the Minister of Sport in England, in, in, in the government. So you can imagine that uh, when I was first invited to the House of Commons, that was the story. Uh, <laughs> I was the guy that I'd actually sent now, Minister of Sport. Off, oh, uh, he lived on that story for some time. And then, as you progress and your skill sets improve, and then you suddenly realise, just a minute, the odd journey is taking place when you're going outside the city of Sheffield to do a game. And then I was promoted. A new league was formed called the Northern Premier League, which was nothing to do with a professional game, but it was semi-professional. So these were ex-professional players who were suddenly becoming. Out of their career, but were earning a few bob, as we call it, some pound notes, to play what effectively was semi-professional uh, football. And many of those teams were on a win bonus pay only. You, you get paid if you win, so yeah. you can imagine the whole attitude change. And at that time, you, you know, you I can remember going to Northwich Victoria against Wigan Athletic. And Wigan Athletic became a Premier League team, believe it or not. And on the journey, I had a brand new car and it got sideswiped big. It's a junction where a police had flagged me through and someone had ignored his stop signal and hit me side on. And so with a dented car, I arrived at the ground, refereed the football match, not very well. And, uh, and came off and apologised and said, look, the game's not gone well. And he goes, you don't look very well. And obviously, during the course of the game, a bit of shock had kicked in. That's my excuse anyway. So the following week, I hadn't got a game until I got a phone call on the Thursday. And um, it was from the, from the Football Association to say I'd been appointed to referee an FA football game. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is a bit of an honour. And the game is between Northwich Victoria against Wigan Athletic. <laughs> And I, I, before I could actually say I don't want to do it, uh, I'm now, I've arrived at the ground. And I've, I've, I've arrived as late as possible and get changed. And then the guy comes in and offers me a cup of tea. And he looks at me with a stare and goes, did you referee here last week? And I go, yes. I walked out. The tea was not on offer. (laughs) Can you imagine? And as I walked out onto the field, I remember the announcer saying, Welcome today. Uh, You might recognise the referee. Let's hope he has a better game than he had last week. And so, if you like, those sort of occurrences um, cemented me into wanting to do better. And, and wanting to, to advance my career. And, you know, I, I took up the whistle in 1960, and in 1972, I was uh, promoted to the Football League, which is a professional competition. There was no Premier League, as you rightly say. And um, I, uh, you can remember, uh, having a couple of years running the line uh, as a linesman, assistant referee, as they call now, and then promoted to the middle, and um, my first game, uh, Stockport County versus Northampton Town in the fourth division. Uh, I, I remember to this day walking out, and uh, Stockport County is on the flight path of Manchester Airport. It is, <laughs> and, and the distraction is that when you've got a seven four seven landing at East throw, and the pilot wants to act as a goalkeeper. There's some fear in that refereeing and there's certainly a distraction. And so you learn. And and uh, then in 1979, a very short period on the football league, I was appointed to the FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Arsenal. Now, as a young lad, I became a Sheffield Wednesday supporter. And as with most lads, The parents took them to the game. I lived in a terrace house, and our journey to the the football game was about. It was
0: was neutral back then, wasn't it? It was a neutral stadium.
1: Yes, but but on on, yeah, so this was a neutral stadium, and the game was Liverpool versus Arsenal. So these were two big clubs, and I. uh, I unfortunately, passed away, but nonetheless, what I decided to do, where, and where I lived, had been raised to the down. I travelled, parked my car, where I used to live, which was a risk, but it was a company car, and locked it up, got my kit out, and walked the three miles. I didn't go, on the way, we used to stop at the pub, where my dad used to have a couple of pints of beer, and we were treated to an orange juice. Um... And then we'd walk to the game. So you can imagine as I'm walking to Hillsborough on what is Penniston Road, some of the supporters that didn't support either team but were Wednesdayites, if you like, they were looking and going, I thought you were refereeing today. And I just sort of ignored them and walked past because this, for me, was my build-up to the game. I refereed the football match. It went to 0-0. Zero, zero. It, it, it was... Boring as a match, but for me it was a big occasion, and um, you know, i'd of refereeing on a football pitch where, behind a fence, mm. oh, I'd watched as a lad. So uh, well, in that year also, I was um, amazingly appointed to run the line uh, in the in the final of the FA Cup, uh, and people have to understand that as a referee and as a linesman you only get the FA Cup final once. Yeah, you like, do. You know, and so that's the tradition. It was broken this year because of COVID. But So, I ran the line in the game Manchester United versus Arsenal and um, it was, it was, a, it's known as the five-minute final because everything happened in the closing stages. No goals up to about five minutes to go and then it finished up 3-2. It was a bit crazy. Um And then two years later, I did the FA Cup final, the 100th FA Cup final, which was, you know, uh, a game that, I refereed. you're asked, by the way, before you start the game at Wembley Stadium, you're asked, do you want a fee or do you want a gold medal? So the fee was £35
0: Hmm.
1: and a medal. Of course, it's a no-brainer because you take the medal. And um, the game was a draw, 1-1. Tommy Hutchinson of Manchester City had scored both goals. And so I walked up the steps at the end of the game to meet the Queen Mother. There's always usually a, well, there is a royal person in the, the game. There's
0: always one royal person, I know that. Yeah.
1: And and I, I sort of bowed and shook and the hand of the Queen Mother and she didn't give me a medal, and I started smiling. And everybody said, what were you smiling about when you left the Queen Mullet? As though she'd said something to me. She didn't. I knew at that point that I was going to get the replay. And as I walked down the steps, the FA guy said it was the replay. The replay took place on the Thursday night. Uh, I think 100,000 spectators on the on the Saturday, 90,000 on the Thursday because of a restriction on night match uh, Tendencies, so it was 90,000. Fallout, and uh, to this day, every every year they play the winning goal, which was scored by Ricky Vier, which is a darting run around three or four players, no exaggeration, and puts the winning goal past the Manchester City goalkeeper, and uh, they won three-two, and it and it summed up football for me because tell a small story in that in the first game. Ricky Veer, the Argentinian, and and one of the few uh, overseas players then. Early one. Had been substituted. And he was disappointed. And you could see when he walked around the perimeter of the field to go to the dressing room, how unhappy he was. And of course, then you see the other side of football, where the following Thursday he scores the winning goal, and the elation is electric. And so... The passion of that particular competition is something that is is remarkable, and it still holds that historic sort of uh, wherewithal. And, and to referee, the hundredth Cup final was was an honour. Yeah. So, having moved then, um, about a, a few months later, I became a, an international FIFA international referee.
0: Yeah, well, you had the badge on your uniform per se wonder, because back then that
1: yeah. was the only days of the badges. So, so you you get your badge, the white badges, it's you wrong. Know? And then I've got a phone call from the secretary of the North American Soccer League, a guy called Keith Walker, who in fact had been the secretary, a former international football referee, believe it or not. And he sort his call was, Would I like to uh, to America and referee on the North American Soccer League as a guest referee. So I arrived uh pretty wet behind the ears to uh, have something like six to eight weeks in America and obviously visiting Canada refereeing games across across America you know and I tell a couple of stories of that the the coming I mean, across the San Diego chicken in Toronto, and uh, he was doing his half-time show. We wanted the game to continue, and you know, television controls things, and I've got the guy at the side of the pitch telling me to start the game. The San Diego chicken's gone sort of live in terms of everybody's enjoying his performance, perhaps more <laughs> than the football. And I'm told quickly to get the San Diego chicken off, so I have to approach him. And uh, as I approach him, obviously, he's got the long beak, the, the spidery legs, the yellow body. And uh, as I move towards him, his beak hits my forehead. And, of course, he, he then falls backwards, lays flat on his face. And as he's going down, throws some feathers in the air. And I was caught big time. Like, absolutely stunned. And the crowd are booing. And I'm thinking, well, I've booed before. or well, I've been booed as a referee before. Uh, and I'm now being booed because I've inputted I've the San Diego chicken <laughs> but it was, it was a great experience coming across America uh, and Canada uh, meeting lots of, of great people I, I also have another story, I was scheduled to do New York Cosmos at Santa's Giant Stadium, by the way I had New York Cosmos one of my very early games, and in that game, uh, Giorgio Canaglia, the star player for New York Cosmos at the time, had jumped up on the shoulders of an opponent, headed the ball into the back of the net, and um, scored a goal. Uh, of which I've then blow my whistle, ruled it out. Canaglia comes chasing after me. I didn't know who it was. I mean, I knew he was an ex player. And he he lets rip uh, with uh, an Italian sort of barrage of words. So which I've said, what is your name? And he looks, what? You don't know me? I am Giorgio Canagli. I am the star of New York Cosmos. Do you know what you have done? I've gone, right, fine, yeah. I've given you a yellow card and I'm reporting you to the league. And of course, it's stunned. <laughs> I can tell you at the end of the match, there's a knockout, a loud knock on my dressing room door. The, my assistant referees, my linesman, one from Canada, at the end of the match said, Keith, I think you should have avoided that. And they go, absolutely not. I set my standards and I, I might be in America, I'm not changing my standards. <laughs> fine. And there's a knock on the door, and uh, in walks, and I'm thinking, there's going to be a problem in the dressing room. And uh, and he went, Mr. Hackett, I want a favour. And I've gone, no, you're reported. And he goes, no, no, can you please give me the yellow card? I want it as a souvenir. And insisted I sign it. And so it's only afterwards that you know the power of canalia and its status within you. And the same thing happened a few a few weeks later when we were stuck in Lincoln Tunnel. And the, you know, I'm looking at my watch with the driver, a chauffeur-driven car. And all of a sudden the driver jumps out of the car and starts shouting. Um in Spanish, or I thought it was Spanish. And uh, the next thing is the side door opened and in stepped this guy. And I don't know who he is, until I look in the mirror of the car, the driver's mirror, and I'm going, wow, that's Carlos Alberto. <laughs> He's the in the New York Cosmos. And he sat at the side of me uh, because he's, he's got pers- quite a perspiration because he's thinking he's going to be late for kickoff, and the driver explained to him, "Don't worry, carlos uh, The man that sat at the side of you is the referee. He doesn't. The game doesn't start until he blows the whistle." Uh, I must say that I, I bottled it a little bit because um, about maybe quarter of a mile from the ground, Giant Stadium. Uh, I asked the driver to stop, take my uh, bag out of the car and walk the remainder. I didn't think it would be good for the game to be seen walking in with Carlos <laughs> Just for integrity situations. But those are the things I learned, you know. And then, of course, I had a long career. I had something like 23 years at the uh, at the Premier League level and uh, at, at football league level, international years as an international referee. Um, you know, I refereed. You know, I had some great, great experiences. Um, I suddenly received a call from uh, UEFA saying that I was appointed to referee Gdansk versus Juventus, and I've gone. My response is, no Englishman is allowed in Poland at the moment because of Jaroszelski and, and the shipyard gates problems. And, and it had been going on quite a bit. And so I, I arrived in Warsaw for the game, uh, and we were shown to our hotel, driven to our hotel, and I said to them, no, I'm very sorry. You have to be in the city of the match 24 hours. Ooh. They were unhappy, and I said, "Look, I'm insisting. If you don't, the game will not go ahead." And so we took a flight from Warsaw to Gdańsk in what was a museum piece of aircraft. I can only explain it that way. Wind coming in, we were flying <laughs> almost at the height of a double-decker bus, uh, and I kept saying, "Because of turbulence, could you go higher?" And the guys eyes <laughs> going, "No." And we found out there was there was no radar. It was. <laughs> He was following the main road from from Warsaw to out which got a roadmap, which was quite amazing. The thing I remember about that game was that the day before you meet, you know, you go to the pitch, you go and go to the ground, you examine the pitch. And then as I was driving back from the ground, the driver said, Look, if someone wants to meet you, and that someone was like Walesa, and um, I met him, and, of course, he was the man in charge of solidarity. He, he later became the president of Poland. And uh, all he wanted to say was, look, the, the goods that have been sent from England, clothing and other goods, were all being distributed in the right manner. And I always thought that was, you know, he went out of his way with some degree of, to, to do that. I asked him if he was going to the game because I knew he was a football supporter. He said no. Um, but as the game got on the way um, with a lot of security, the, game, the ball was kicked into the crowd and all of a sudden, the crowd parted and there was like Valencia uh, stood on his own and everybody turned and started shouting, Uh, solidarity and uh, you know having that and then later on on unification night refereeing the last game between an East and West German team having the experience of going through Checkpoint Charlie you know which is quite was quite formidable you're walking towards East Germany uh, where people have tried to escape and there is a fear fight and you're on your own you know and the guy greeting me at the other end and sort of saying, it's amazing football, Mr. Hatke. I said, pardon, it's amazing football that you are allowed to walk through Czech Republic, Charlie, with no checks and to referee a game in East Germany. Fantastic. He said, a few years ago, the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, Someone I admire, he said, was not allowed to come through Cape Queen And he gave a very important speech that all of his East Germans listened to that gave us some hope. And so football becomes at times more than a game. For me, massive interest, you know, having traveled 100 countries. And so <clears throat> In that period, I refereed the Olympic Games. At, you know, I and 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 you have to remember that I wasn't a professional referee. I was a, a, an amateur referee in a professional environment. And so there was always this: uh, how can I get away from the from my my job, which was now as a sales and marketing director for for a large company? How can I get time out? So it was always like the pressure wasn't refereeing football matches. It was getting out of the get out of the company at four o'clock, and then driving like a madman to a football match. Uh, and I was appointed to referee New Zealand versus Australia, you know, in a World Cup preliminary game. And um, at the end of that, at, at the end of that game, I was went back to my hotel, and I was informed I'd lost my job. So I lost my job on a couple of occasions because of football. Um, but that shows my passion. And then there was a lot of talk about the introduction of a professional league, a professional referee, uh, after I'd retired. And um, I, um, you know, I, I'd i issued, issued a paper to the Premier League before, uh, when I retired, about referees becoming professional and why. And I, I put in this this problems that referees had in terms of preparation. The game was getting quicker. The Premier League was, you know, I'd, I'd had two years on the Premier League in terms of helping it to, you know, I'd gone get on to... Get started. Yeah. And so I did the two years and they wanted me to do a third. And I said, no, my, at 50, I felt my refereeing days were were over as far as professional game. I intended to referee in local football and enjoy my refereeing again. In that sense, um, and put forward this paper, which I, sh- I shared with the chairman of the Premier League, guy called Sir Dave Richards, and uh, out of that, the professional game match officials limited was formed. I was invited to become the boss of that organisation and refused and said no. I <clears throat> I didn't want to live in London. Frankly, I, I was happy to commute. Uh, once or twice a week, but it's not the place for me. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Sheffield, 20-minute drive, and I'm, I'm in the countryside. I'm in the Peak District or wherever. And it, In London, you drive for a couple of hours and you're still in sub- suburbia. So for me, um, that wasn't an option. And then for 18 months, two years, I got the call again from the from the Premier League saying, look, we, we really would want you to I'd become the, the boss of the PPM. The I went through the, the usual formal interview process and secured the job. And, uh, and then I decided I would professionalise free. So I went around football club managers, chapter two managers, Arsene Wenger, Alex Ferguson, David Moyes, and many more. Understood how a football club ran and how sports science was involved in football. And, of course, I'd seen that very closely, having refereed in the Olympic Games in Seoul in 1988. And I'd watched, you know, athletes, and I'd spoken to their coaches. I went to boxing one evening and saw Roy Jones win the bout comfortably. You know, the famous Roy Jones as a boxer. He won it comfortably. And then the man that followed... uh, that he'd lost the fight because the judges had voted against him. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was reasonably knowledgeable of Procter. Uh, and he won it by a mile. He didn't win it. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't lose it by an inch. And so I was really concerned about that. And uh, but what I did see that day was there was Roy Jones, who probably trained for years to get to that final or whatever the gate, the, the realm was, uh, and how he lost with great dignity. It was, it, the, the media, the American media were going berserk, but he, I don't know if that was shot, but I, I'd like to think that that was just the gentleman in him. It. It, it was quite awe inspiring. And so, PGMOL was formed, the Professional Game Match Officials Limited, with its own budget, uh, its three board directors, being the football league, the football association, and the Premier League, within a matter of short space of time, I've seen a game of rugby on television, uh, and I'd list I'd watched the referee communicate to his touch judges, with communication kits. So I went along to a rugby a union match at uh, Twickenham. I listened in to what the referee was saying. I was I was sold on it. That following week, I went back. And ordered the, the communication kits, didn't even think about getting the approval from FIFA. And now those are standard kits used by yeah. referees around the world. Of course, we did have our problems in the first uh, few months of those uh, <laughs> uh, communication kits, how they were worn in the ear and various other things. But, the, but the, I, w- I was attending the game at Chelsea, and the referees running around the football field, refereeing this football match. And all of a sudden, he stops for no reason. And of course, I'm watching the I'm watching the referee. I'm not I'm watching the game football. I'm watching He's ear to his mic, and all of a sudden, he pulls out the earpiece. So I go in after the game and sort of review, and I said, "Look, I have to tell you, pulling the earpiece out when I'm trying to get the communications established as a good good tool for referees to use." It's going to give me a bit of damage and a bit of pain. Why did you pull the epi out? Well, it's quite simple. And he goes, I want a cab from Kensington High Street to Oxford Circus. Said, I was referring a football mic. <laughs> and therefore we have a, a transmission problem where he got a request for a cab. Yeah. We overcame that with encryption and various other things later. Like. Um, but what I did do with the professional game was to actually introduce uh, sports science. I employed a full time sports scientist, Matt Weston, who's now, uh, I think, Professor Matt Weston, who's now employed by the MLS. Uh, I, my business plan was quite simple uh, to create a cadre of world class officials. So I brought in sports psychologists to look at body language, um, feeling the pressure. Um, I brought a vision scientist in, not only to check the eyesight, which is important, but to actually look at reaction times of individual officials, how quickly the eye and the reaction times. And so we, we had some really uh, interesting measurements, but we also had eye exercises to help the peripheral vision. All those things were introduced and then towards the end, uh, I watched the game, Manchester United versus uh, Tottenham Hotspur and the Manchester United goalkeeper Roy Carroll dropped the ball over the line by about a good yard and as a result of that, it was a goal and I could see it from sitting in the director's box at Old Trafford, the referee Mark Plattenberg near the halfway line hadn't got a chance, the assistant referee in line with the second rearmost defender, way upfield, was in his right position, and had no chance of following the ball, which was a long speculative shot at goal, to be in a position to judge whether the ball's over the line or not. So we had a goal that wasn't given. And a few months later, I was asked at a Premier League meeting with all the chairmen and owners and managers and whatever, not managers, given blue sky thinking, what would I like? And I said, no line technology. And so we then developed that, and it took something like, uh, believe it or not, I'd retired from the PJMOL by the time it was actually introduced. Because FIFA were very reluctant to introduce that piece of technology. People mm. remember reading about it, And so there were people around the scene that... Uh, and it's worked. You know, it, it's... it. What, what I said when I talked to Orkai was... can I I take away the human element? How do I do that? All I want, and we came to the view that the referee would wear a watch and a signal once the ball had crossed the line would automatically go to the watch, vibrate, and he would know that's a goal. He wouldn't wouldn't interrogate a screen, nothing else other than a goal is given. And as a result of that, uh, there's there's an acceptance. You know, we've only had one occasion where I think someone forgot to switch the machine on. It Villa versus Sheffield United last year when the ball did cross the line or appeared to cross the line and a goal wasn't given and everybody looked at it and goal line technology wasn't operating on the day. So that's the only time, the downside of that. And so, um, you know, we progressed and we created, if you like, a cadre of... World class players. We probably had 10 out of the 18 that could have refereed any game anywhere around the world. And of course, one of those uh, referees that uh, was developing at that period of time and being coached very carefully was Howard Wett. Yeah. And uh, Howard, of course, went on to referee the uh, 2010 World Cup final, uh, which was a game that many people enjoyed. It was pretty tough. I think a lot of yellow cards, probably Howard in reflection would have sent the young off for his uh, behaviour. He didn't because he wanted to keep all the players on the field of play. And so he came through really well uh, in that game. And now, of course, he's... Uh, for me, he retired too prematurely. I'd gone as the yes. boss of the yes. but uh, He's now... And then, you know, he's become the boss of Pro referee. And I, I played a part in Pro Referee on the basis that uh, Asher Mendelssohn and Nelson Rodriguez, I think Nelson Rodriguez is now connected to Chicago, but he was an executive with the MLS. And, so, and Asher was, I think, head of refereeing at uh, US Soccer. And I had meetings with them both in London and in New York, uh, out of which uh, we. Uh, they created a pro-referee, which uh, which was their signal that they would, on the MLS, have professional referees. And I think it's gone very well in America. Uh, mm. One area where I think it's better in the MLS and pro-referee is where they're handling VAR. Because over here, it's a hot topic. Almost every week, it's a hot topic. Whereas I think in listening to, as I did a few weeks ago to a conference, online conference, uh, the Greg Barkey, who runs VAR, it's very evident that the MLS and Pro are much more advanced in how it's used, how it's uh, managed, how the referees operate it, and that's great credit. That's great credit to the Pro management team and the referees themselves in terms of of how we operated it. It will never be foolproof, but it will aid the quality of decision-making at the end of the day. Yeah, totally. And so that's it. I mean, in that period of time, um, I worked with a uh, Paul Trevilian, an artist, and uh, under the banner of You Are the Ref, I've written many books. And that uh, in a phone app. Back in the day as well, if I remember, yes. yeah. I mean, we, uh, yeah, that was when apps were rather new. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I bought yeah. the
0: app when I was living in England. I bought the app on my phone, and I liked it. That's
1: what. made yeah, yeah, yeah. It went, it went really well. So in that in that sense, uh, we were pretty pleased because it, it, you know, it was just a cartoon strip drawn by Trillian, where the public would bring in questions, sometimes outrageous questions. (laughs) And uh, we'd get the drawing and the question and I would do the answer. Yeah, so pretty good in that sense. So
0: so you're saying about football referees being nowadays more advanced than they were when you were a referee. Do you think, talking Premier League talk now, do you think the Premier League Is it a level where it's acceptable for the referees to be the level they are? Or do you think there's still some criticisms? Like I was reading on the news the other day, a referee pretty much coming up to a footballer and looked like they were locking heads. Uh, He apologised, but there is an investigation, which I know I don't want to go into the legal requirements on that. But it was just, do you think there is that more pressure on the referee or is it balanced in...
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, you, know, you almost have to be professional by the very nature that, you know, a referee is expected to run at a minimum of 11,500 metres in a game. And uh, a, over a 1,000 metres of that eleven and a half has to be run at speeds in excess of 7 metres per second. That's the speed at which the top-class players move. And uh, the process of a referee is to see, recognize, think, and act. That's what we do, everybody, in in everyday life. But that's what a referee has to do. And I've examined many video clips of referees and where they're accused of making errors, and they do make errors, And, and that is because they've failed to see. And the failure to see is because they've given up the run. You know, in my day, it was more about endurance training, running running at the same pace on and, on and on until you feel tired. As you bring in sports science, you realize that the game has moved from uh, endurance into high power sprinting. And those sprints are required because during what a player and anticipating what a player might do next is not as easy as it used to be. You know, a defender in my day would, job jobs to boot it upfield, running it as crude as that. Now it's more sophisticated. And the quality and skill sets within the game catch the catch referees out. And therefore, the whole aspect of ensuring that you're sprinting um, at, at speed is really vital. And therefore, the performance analysis system that you have for measuring the referee's performance has to move out of the world of perception into reality. And the judgment has to be, how far were you behind play when you made that inaccurate judgment? Or why did you allow a player to block your view? Now, that is why I'm a supporter of VAR, because it covers that point to some degree. But what VAR does, potentially, is make referees lazy. And already, in the very short space of time that I've seen VAR operating, referees are becoming lazy. They are, in effect, pulling from the major decisions at times, knowing that they've got a VAR operator that's going to pull them out of the mire, or actually give them the decision. Mm. Therefore, I worry about that. I think it's a it's a world now of, of referees being athletic as well as being experienced and knowledgeable about the law, and uh, and that in itself is important. Um, and I think we've you know there's also the question of the businesses as you like. I mean you've got to understand that the the PGML budget is around about 21 million. It was five million when I left. It's now 21 million. Put into refereeing at the professional level in England, that's a huge amount of money. Then I just put my business out on and say, actually, it's not producing the results for that amount of investment at the moment. And one of the problems they face is that they've got an ageing population of referees. And the succession planning, as I see it, is not working as effectively as it should. And some of those referees on the list uh, should have retired two or three years ago. Yeah, I agree with that.
0: I agree with
1: that. And so I think it's, I think it's effectively, you know, that is about management. Not that's not about the referee. The referee has to go out and do his job as best as he can every day, every time he's given an the appointment. But then I think there's also got to be a, a level of accountability, and that is. Are the fitness levels produced on that in that particular game sufficient for that game? Uh, are the quality of decisions making accuracy uh, effective? And if you have a league table, you know, uh, okay, it doesn't apply in the MLS, but in England, if you're bottom of the league or you're third from bottom of the league, you're relegated. Yeah. And, and I and I use that same view that if. Uh, If you're operating as referees and you have a list of 16 referees and you're at the bottom, then you should be up. It's as simple as that. And and I think that level of accountability, you know, what's incumbent upon the, like in any business, if you have a falling star or, or an operative that's not doing the job effectively, what is so important to that business is that you train and give that operator operational advice so you ensure that as the boss of the PGM well you're you're putting everything into that referee to either get him back on form and to be a better referee if there's no response and it's still the heartbeat is still going on a straight line and no improvement then that's when you've got to make the judgment that's no different in my opinion to the manager of a football club at the end of the season has to release some players. And then what he does is he brings some new players into the team. And referees should be treated in exactly the same way. So when we've got a referee who's 52 and some at 50, there's a, there has to be a recognition that they're coming to the end of their career. And there has to be a recognition of employing new youthful referees uh, onto the list and getting them bedded in to doing those games as quickly as possible. And how you do that is really important. The number of games through the referee, how you deal with the, how you deal with uh, aspects of training and coaching. And, you know, um, I think at this moment in time, the PGM well is, is at the bottom of the curve and, and, and not climbing yet. And I think he's got to recognise that at the moment, there's a dip. But there was always going to be a dip when you can't retain the services of people like Howard Webb, Mark Plattenberg, and others.
0: Yeah, totally. It's like, I noticed there was a big change in refereeing when Howard Webb officially retired. And even when Mark Plattenberg did actually leave as well, because they were the two distinguished referees that people knew and recognised. And they were the fourth phases of, I know that was obviously up the release, and as there is, but there isn't real real consistency in the game now.
1: No, where... I, I think I think there's certainly yeah, uh, problematic areas in in refereeing. There's no doubt. I mean, I think that they've been very poor in the uh, in the installation of VAR and its operation. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think you know what do you have to do when you. are when you're running an organisation, is recognise your weaknesses. But but you've got to recognise them, and then you've got to act and do something about them. And I think there's a failure to recognise that some referees are not performing well, and they're just being given appointments. And and those people lower the standards and lower the motivation of others that are doing. If we take an example, Lee Mason, who's long, as a referee, long on the Premier League, uh, moving towards 50, and not performing well. And, um, and if you look, he's had nine Premier League games. Now, he earns an equivalent salary to Michael Oliver. He's our, probably our current number one referee. He is,
0: because he's still been listed, did not he?
1: Yeah. And, and, and Michael's had 18 Premier League games. But he's also had, in fact, this season to date, 27 games. Because he's had four Champions League games and two National League games. So he's had 27 games this season against Lee Mason's nine on the Premier League and probably a couple in the Football League. So, you know, that in itself must be telling the management that you haven't got the total confidence in that referee. So, and he's at an age when you, you know, I don't like age um, in terms of input because, you know, with that comes experience. But it is about on-field performance. You know, you, may, you might have the experience, you might be fit, you might be mobile and 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 do things, but how effective are you as a referee and how are you being touched by other people in the game? So I think that that is the area that concerns me. And yeah, you know, I think the quality at the moment, apart from the odd few, I mean, if, if you look at Martin Atkinson, He's a retired FIFA referee. Uh, He's 50 now. And he actually is refereeing as well as he's ever done. So I'm actually showing that a 50-year-old can referee at that level Mm. can can produce quality. But some people hit the retirement age button long before they retire. And they talk Mm -hmm. about, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a cottage in them. In the countryside, I'm going to do this and this, and up here, they remain in retirement mode. Because their efficiency levels drop, their motivation drops. And so the old psychology of uh, a flat hand palm of the hand in the middle of a referee, that drive him to do his best is the important bit. Mm-hmm. This, I hope, is what Howard Webb and his team of co-referee are doing, you know? Uh, you know, I was I was offered that job when we were forming that organisation, sadly, because of uh, contractual issues with the PGMR, with the Premier League in PGMR. I couldn't take that. But Peter Walton came in as a, as a retired Premier League referee and started the process. Howard Webb's continuing that process. Mark Battenberg is currently in charge of referees in Greece. So... You know, these these people who have been top-class referees are in fact being used effectively in the coaching, training and management of referees in other parts of the world, which I take a great deal of pride in. So you were saying about football referees
0: with their age. In your generation of referees in the early days of the Premier League, it was David Ellery, um, Paul Durkin, that sort of thing. Do you think they reached their potential enough, or do you think there could have been more for them?
1: Oh, I think I—I I, I mean, both of them were outstanding referees. But, you know, I, I was in a, a cadre of quality referees that was very competitive. I mean, just before that, we had people like George Courtney, Pat Partridge, myself, Neil Midgley. There were a lot of English referees that were at the top of the game, getting appointed to big games. Um. And then in the era of Ellery, it was Philip Don and others, Graham Paul, that, that, and, you know, Paul Bauer and Graham Barber, sorry, and, and others. And when I look across that n- number of referees, I saw personality. I saw referees with personality, with a, an individual approach. What I'm seeing now is a suppression of personality, I'm yeah. seeing a view, a view that they're manufactured, which wasn't the remit. The remit was to say, can we make them better? Would Paul Durkin have been a better referee? Well, he was an outstanding referee. You know, is, he was small in stature. This was a guy <laughs> massive on personality and, and, and with a sense of humor. And I can remember sitting as his boss. At Leeds United, on I put him on the game. Remember, he travelled from the south coast up to yeah, Leeds
0: from Port- from Portland.
1: <laughs> yeah, so he had he had quite a a journey to make, uh, and I watched him walk out to the middle. And he was he looked six foot six, you know. He he had presence as a referee during the course of the games. There was a bit of an altercation between two players. Of which Paul went in between, and I, I tell you, he was he was overshadowed by two effectively giant players, and he was small referee in the middle, uh, and he parted the uh, the confrontation, uh, gave them some words of advice, and then got them to shake hands, the two players, and uh, the the whole. Audience that were in that stadium at Ellen Road applauded. Applauded at what they saw was an, an outstanding piece of, of refereeing. And there uh, are numerous occasions. David Ellery now is, of course, the technical director of the International Football Association Board, the body responsible for law changes. And over recent times, uh, you know, had the, had the task of updating the, the, the 17 laws of the game. Not an easy task. And, and I think in, in that change, he's created some loopholes. As an individual referee, he was completely the opposite to me. I'm a guy who comes from a working-class background. I think David's parents probably did. But David finished up as a housemaster at Harrow School private public school with great renowns and of course they also have great history in football uh, they would say that they invented the game which was slightly different they still play annually where they, they play on a mudded field and do whatever they have to do and the, the referees stand outside the game with a stick um, different approach a different character completely great communicator and um you know he's got a he's got a major role to play, and I don't think he's I don't think he's really started. I think he's got some work to do in terms of law amendments to make offside law more more, if you like, sellable to those that are playing the game and manage the game. I think you have seen in England with VAR the nonsense of code being given offside that's unacceptable within the game. Goals being ruled out, in my opinion, because you know. The knee is offside, or whatever. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Um, we, we're seeing, if you like, uh, that particular change. There are other referees, Graham Paul, who had huge personality, and some would say went over the top. At times, he did, uh, but that's that was his style. You had Mark Alzi, who uh, was a referee that covered just run forever, really fit. Sadly, developed uh,
0: well cancer, didn't he? Yes. Well, he had cancer,
1: and uh, I was his boss at the time. And uh, he had a wonderful first game of the season, Everton versus Arsenal. And I'm sat in my office, and I'm making the appointments for the following week in London. And uh, I passed the appointments across to my PA. My PA came in with tears in her eyes and said, "Look, you." have he got to take me palsy off the game, and I've gone. Why? Uh, he was diagnosed with cancer a week ago, and I've gone. But he he did the Everton Arsenal game. We go. Yeah, he's got to go into hospital. He in fight he's probably in hospital now. But I was somewhat shocked that we hadn't picked that up before. It was, it was still cancer, and um, and then I worked very closely because I was on the P, on the verge of retiring from the PGMRL. Um, i watched his fight it, it's filmed by a television company in the northwest of england um, and he survived it and it, it's a fabulous story
0: and he came back to the top flight as well even after the oh, yes, and,
1: and uh, it, that was that was his aim uh, and he succeeded in that but i, I feel that uh, i was no longer the boss of the P. J. Miles, someone else had taken over, and I think he could have been treated better. Mm-hmm. I think, in fairness, recognition that he'd had this long battle, and he struggled to get back. He passed the fitness tests, refereed really well. Uh, I don't think he had that hands-on support, and it was I. I was able to fill the gap in the time available to me in relation to being able to meet up with him and give him words of encouragement. I even watched every game coming back. I can tell you one of the games, two of the games I attended as his guest, the first one was at Wolverhampton Wanderers. When he stepped over the white line to referee that football match, the whole stadium stood and applauded him. And on his final game, I was sat next to the professor who carried out his operation and watched Mark's remarkable recovery. And as he walked out onto Manchester City Stadium, the FDR stadium, the whole, again, spectators rose to their feet and applauded it. And the players also. And that, that was a real touching scene that said football is more than just a game. And it is. Yeah. you know. And, and having been through a period where, you know, I've refereed in the Eastern Bloc and seen oppression, and uh, refereed around the world. And then, as the you know, as the Premier League referee ambassador, I was privileged to go to Africa, Ethiopia, Nigeria, South Africa, uh, all the countries, Botswana and the like, Cameroon. Um, we would take people out of villages. They would be coached to become coaches of football. And I would have a small working group and take them through the laws of the game, give them some games to referee, monitor their performance. And, uh, you know, one of those guys, more than one, but the one that stands out is Elvis Nupu from Cameroon who within a short space of time, much quicker than my elevation to FIFA, became a FIFA official. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I can remember a phone call from him from the, his airport in Cameroon expressing fear because at that point, the only time he'd seen an aircraft was in the sky when it passed over his village. And uh, and now he was getting on an aeroplane and he had a fear of flying. And so he'd phone me to say, Mr. Keith, I have a problem. You. you know, we explained and I said to him, look, watch the planes? And we were watching the planes, and I say, Elvis, has any crash? And he said, No. Smiled and went off air. You know, I answered by a quip, if you like, is 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 fear factor. But you know, the pride that I have in that. We used to have an exchange program with New Zealand referees and Australian referees coming across, and then seeing those referees go back into their own country and then pointed to World Cup finals is something I take a great deal of pride in. Yeah. And, and at the current time, one of those referees became, Gerard Gillett became the number one Australian referee in the A-League. And then he's taking, he, he's currently at Liverpool University, uh, taking a degree. And I was delighted when in fairness, P.J. Noel agreed that he would become a referee in England for a period. And he's refereeing on the championship, and he's knocking on the door because everybody's saying to me, "He's refereeing so well. Why don't we use him on the Premier League?" Mm. Um, and if he was to achieve, you know, Premier League status, that would be uh, quite remarkable. Yeah, we've had a guy. And and the real thing was that they used to come and they'd see the Premier League referees training under the supervision of uh, Matt Wester and. Uh, and he he was a driver, but he was also very scientific. He's written terrific papers. And I'm re- I'm really pleased that he's got that involvement with Pro Referee in America. Because, you know, uh there's some referee, some excellent referees in, in the NLS. Hmm. And, uh, and I think everybody's doing a good job.
0: So in recent months, and this is I think in the last six to eight months. We've seen a transformation as well from being a male-populated referee-based game. I'm not saying system referee because we've got Sam Massey who's a assistant referee, but we've now got a female official coming through the ranks now where she's actually the first female proper referee to officiate a male game. Do you think that's where more females
1: a whole oh, should developed as well? Um, I, can, I can remember many years ago, probably around about 1982, 83, uh, I was invited to a soccer camp at Dornigan, uh on Victoria Island. And um, my task was to actually coach the young referees that were there. And, uh, and for the first time, I was involved with, with training and coaching women referees. And, you know, you you ask yourself the question, what is their capacity to handle conflict as a person? And then I go, you know, in in my room, how am I going to treat these people? I'm going to treat them differently. I suddenly thought, well, just a minute, there are women in the the army in uh, in, uh, various countries in England as well. I, I travelled on a, on a fly from England to, to America and there was a woman serving officer that had sort of lines and lines of awards and I'm thinking that's a brave individual. So <clears throat> I put gender out of the window and said, right, whoever they are, whoever I'm coaching, and this was in the early 80s, um, I would treat them exactly the same, and I think what was interesting that week was at the end of the the, the, the sort of course, there was a, a major football match where a lot of the people who had been mm-hmm. at, in attendance at the soccer school would play this football final, mm-hmm. and all of us selected the woman to be you know the woman to be the referee, and she refereed superbly. And in my mind that week. On that trip, oh, change. I came back and then would have liked when when Andy Thomas, who was then currently on the running line, I would have liked to have been able to pass the fitness test, become a referee. I think now in England, of course, we have designated channels for the, the officials. They, at some point in their career, select, um, am I going to be an assistant referee? Or am I going to be a referee? This is at the professional level, semi-professional level. I think Sean Massey-Ellis would make a very good referee. And therefore, I I would be, if I was the boss, saying, look, do you realise that you could become, within the next couple of three years, uh, you know, the first English woman referee to referee the FA Cup final, or whatever, the referee on the Premier League. So, it's it's coming. I think... uh, in Germany, they've had an outstanding woman referee, I think they've got one in um, in France uh, we've, we're still developing, we're, we're behind the time, you know with history comes uh, an anchor that you're dragging and with history we've got a lot of people who talk the words but don't do the action mm. so I think we've some way to go and I think that's a pity because I think like uh, the women should be given that opportunity uh, at all yeah. levels of the game. I'm seeing it low, at low levels now in grassroots football, and I'm seeing some good referees. But certainly, you know, Canada, uh, Italy, uh, Australia, New Zealand have all got aspiring women referees who are moving to that top echelon, with some of them already in the top echelon. And that's good for the game. It's good yes. for the game. Because, uh, you know, uh, I think we have to recognise in America, by the way, that the women's game is far more advanced than in England. Despite the fact that we've got professional league now, uh, it's amazing how we suddenly appear to be importing a number of American players <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to give us a status uh, on the games that are covered on television. But that's,
0: you know, that's evolving. And another thing that's amazed me as well is the um, development of UI of Redney. He was one of the leading referees as well in the early 2000s, late 90s, where he was recognised because of how he came through the
1: journey of himself. Yeah, well, I mean, he lives obviously uh, locally here in Sheffield, uh, so I knew him well. Uh, his reputation was solid in in terms of a black referee. Uh, in Sheffield, sure. uh, at junior level, refereeing really well. Everybody's saying to me, have you seen this guy? I, and, and the answer was yes, I'd seen him two or three times and he was very impressive. And you knew at that point in his career at grassroots level that he, he was an outstandingly fit referee, tall uh, in stature uh, and a uh, good referee a bit. And he came through uh there was a period in his career where he found it difficult coping with the, the, the Premier League uh, and its requirements, but he then had a, a year refereeing at Football League level, one year down, came back a stronger referee, and, uh, and now, believe it or not, is uh, on the FA Referees Committee. Um, so he's got a position where he can influence change. Within refereeing in England, uh, if his voice is heard. But sadly, um, I think that uh, trying to encourage um, various uh, sorts of ethnic background uh, referees, people to become referees, seems to be a lack of effort on the organization side, I. Mm-hmm. i.e. the FA grassroots level, to say look and going into schools and saying look this this could be a career pathway, but actually to get them uh, involved in the game at that level, and and if you look at correlation between the number of black players we've got uh, against the number of black referees, it's not it's not in line. Yeah. So even despite the fact that we had an iconic leader to demonstrate uh, white referees can be excellent referees and we were watching that around the world when it came to World Cups Uh, uh, then what we should say is we've got some way to go and therefore there has to be a degree of focus I think in that area and I think in fairness the FA, in fairness to them have recognised that and are beginning to do some work on it so hopefully we'll we'll get that representation of society within our game. Uh, we've got it as far as players are concerned. We haven't got it as far as referees are concerned. And that might be some difficulty that young people of, of various backgrounds have in wanting to take up the whistle. But We've got to create beating uh, down those barriers uh, as part of the effort. Mm.
0: Now I mentioned earlier about the iconic um, match between Manchester United and Arsenal, where it was very fiery, and it ended up with Arsenal yeah. losing the league by two points because they got deducted to two points. Yes. What was your mem- What's your memories of that game? Because obviously, I've got the picture which I'll be using well, for
1: the YouTube and. Podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, effectively, uh, I'm in the middle of a full house, uh, a game that is massive towards who's going to win the title with a history in the game of developing confrontations taking place. Uh, so Arsenal had already been at Norwich and had had a mass fallout and uh, yellow cards had been given. And the game itself that I was officiating was not a problem but what I didn't recognise and should have, and this is why I say to referees now, your, your preparation has to be thorough. Know the teams, know the players, and know the history. And uh, if I'd have known the history that there was going to be a clash between an Arsenal and Manchester United player, then maybe I'd have kept one eye on it in terms of the game. But I didn't. And so out of nothing, out of a challenge, we suddenly had 21 players in a mass brawl. What's interesting about a mass brawl is that, um, unlike rugby, uh, they'll come in on a mass brawl and they'll attempt to knock people out. <laughs> and you will have people finishing on the floor. In in football, it's what, what I term handbags at seven paces, really. There's all this uh, body language of threatening and you, you know, but I'm in the middle of it because I took the view as a tall guy that I would go in, pile in, and separate the factors, which I did. I then had a few seconds to think because then it was, who am I going to send off? And I suddenly thought it could have been one of 21. And I suddenly, just, I then decided, don't send anybody off. I issued a couple of cards, yellow cards, I think and then reported it. But what I did do was make my report very detailed, very thorough in terms of what had happened, what I'd seen, what my assistants had seen. And we went to a disciplinary hearing in London at the Football Association. And there you're interrogated. What would you see? What did you do? Uh, what would you have done differently? Had you seen the video that they played? And well, I would have done differently by sending this player off and that player off. The two, insti- the two instigators of the problem. But they were on the opposite side of the, of the, the milling. So I didn't see what was going on. It was not available to me. And it clearly wasn't available to the my lines the system, at least. And for the first time in the history of football in England, the Football Association um, not only fined but they then uh, deducted points two from Arsenal because of a previous misdemeanor on the same lines and and Manchester United one point so it was the first time in the history of the game that points had been deducted and remains so believe it or not that's why it's always brought up when Manchester United are playing Arsenal either at at, 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 uh, Old Trafford or down at uh, the Emirates I think in fairness, what we had was at that point, it came to a focal point. Out of which then, when I was boss of the PGMOL, I decided to sit down and write a, a protocol for mass confrontation. And, and that is in simple terms is recognize the two of mass confrontation taking place Try not to get involved. Blow the whistle light matters the referee and stand and watch. Um, the nearest assistant referee to the Mali comes on fairly quickly and again takes an observation role. The one near the technical area comes on in last, in priority terms, and watches any runners. And the outcome is, the minimum outcome is two yellow cards. The other aspect is, if there are red cards, you send the waiting player off first, then the home team red player, whoever he is. You ask your assistant referees through the communication pits, any more reds? If there are, you send the next red off, and, and then you follow the yellows. What I can suggest to the listeners is this. Go onto YouTube, Watch the Carling Cup Final, nineteen ninety three. Remember it, Aston Villa versus Liverpool. And uh, it is in the final minutes of the game where Howard Webb's the referee. He has a mass confrontation. The outcome is he dismisses two red cards. He then asks because there's another player who's completely lost control. He gets the card, having had a discussion with the system. And then the two captains get yellow cards. And that became, if you like, the format of referee training on mass confrontations going forward. The, the model of how to deal with mass confrontation.
0: Mm. So, to, um, recent years, have you seen any football referees look up to you and aspire to be you like Premier League referees do you think any aspire to being the modern day you?
1: Well I always um, I did a book uh, in which uh, I invited Howard Webb to write the forward and I, I always take great pride in Howard saying that he was a referee that and watch my career closely, and I and I see many traits that Howard has, some that I didn't have, because Howard was a uh, superbly fit referee, very mobile, a much better manager of conflict than than I ever was. But so that's yeah, his, 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 his it as well. Yes, yeah. and, and he got that level of training. So I think in that sense. Um, To have a forward written by Howard in one of my books Um, took me by a little little bit by shock when I first read it because I take great pride in what he achieved as an individual referee. Coming through a similar sort of background to myself um, in terms of working in a, a city close by Sheffield, steelworks, You know, certain deprived areas. The fact that he, as a referee, before the PGMOL was formed, would referee a football match. And even when he was a Premier League referee, he retained certain hours as a police officer. And he would referee a Premier League game, uh, grab some food, drive home to Sheffield, and be a sergeant on a (laughs) 12-plus. Sorting out drunks and various other misdemeanors. (laughs) I think I think with that, um, he's probably the best referee I've ever seen in terms of a man manager. You know, George Courtney came close, and I think I see some traits of George Courtney, another top English referee in Howard, in terms of how he dealt with players the fitness George Courtney was a much fitter referee than I was and and so I think that those are things that that you watch modern refereeing is different it's much more dynamic in my time you know we we would be watched by three cameras on match of the day and you might get 20 minutes of highlights of your match modern day refereeing in the Premier League minimum 22 cameras uh, and been live to 211 territories around the world, minimum. <laughs> so, and you've got uh, various pundits and former referees like myself looking at decisions and commentating on those decisions in an effort to try and educate the audience, not necessarily to hammer the referee. And so, in the week that you mentioned, perhaps to close the interview. We had a referee adopting aggressive attitude towards a player who clearly, I think, abused him by pointing at him. The referee amazingly lost his cool, and for the first time in England at senior level, we saw a referee put his face in the opponent of a uh, you know of a player, which is unheard of, and which he's apologised. But, you know, I think that we should ask for those referees when it happens, what advice can we give them? And I've said to referees, when facing confrontation, you have the laws of the game that protect you. And if, it, if the player goes OTT, show them a red card and get rid of them, get rid of the problem. Before it escalates. Yeah, exactly that. So I'm delighted to have been on your show.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you for telling me your life, telling me Pleasure. how refereeing has gone from literally grassroots to the game it is now with VIR, with everything. It's just amazing. And your journey hopefully will inspire future generations to be, hopefully, a referee, assistant referee. Yeah. So thank you. And Pleasure. yes, and as I told you before, and I'll say it again. Yes, you're not my granddad, even though I used to joke around when I was growing up saying you're my granddad, (laughs) referee. Thanks, David. Thank you, Keith. Thank Thank you.